Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Um, welcome, everybody, to City Beautiful Church. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. And we're in a series right now called Thinking Christianly, where we're uh, kind of prayerfully going through the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, asking this question, how do we learn to think like Christians, especially in the chaos of the modern world? I think for many of us, we've been taught what to think as Christians, but we haven't necessarily been taught how to think. So a lot of times we're bumping into conversations in the larger culture that we're not really equipped well to engage with Um, because some of our answers are a little bit antiquated or we use, you know, what we maybe think of as like insider language that it makes sense in here when we say these things, but if we're conversing with friends and families and coworkers and whatnot, it doesn't really make a a lot of sense to them. So how do we learn, first of all, as Paul says elsewhere, like be transformed by the renewing of our mind to think more like Jesus um, so that we can engage the modern world with a real sense of faithfulness. And so today we're going to be looking at one of my absolute favorite passages in scripture. For me, uh, many of you would know this. For me, it's the prodigal son parable. It's Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. And it's probably like Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Like I hold those as my lenses through which I read basically all the rest of scripture. So this is a big deal, which means I'm, you know, I'm going to do my best to keep in time today. But I, I get real excited about this stuff. So... Um, So this is kind of my thesis today. Thinking Christianly leads us into the upside down kingdom of Jesus. Thinking Christianly begins to revert all of our assumed ways of how things are supposed to be. It it flips conventional wisdom on its head and we're gonna see Paul talking about that today. So I'm gonna pray for you and you pray for me and we'll get into this. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you're for us, not against us. And Lord, if there's any of us in here that don't believe that, help us in our unbelief. Whatever um, images we have of you that have been uh, skewed or obscured uh, by our cultural norms, uh, whether it's something we've learned in the church or something that we've brought in with us, we lay all of that at your feet and say, show us who you are. Show us your glory. We don't want to exist on the rumors of what you're like that other people have said. We don't want to, uh, to wrongly see you through pagan lenses where we think that you're a bit more like Zeus than you are like Jesus. We want to come to you time and again to be surprised and delighted by how we discover your heart at the core um, of the gospel, of seeing that when we look in the face of Jesus, we're looking upon your face. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read it in a slightly different translation here right up at the beginning, and then we're going to break it down, um, because I think it helps for some of us maybe that have grown up in church to read it in unconventional language that maybe breathes some new life into it. I really love this translation. This is from uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, so we automatically just affirm everything he does is the best. It's number one. So, and in typical N.T. Wright fashion, he has translated the whole New Testament um, by himself from the ancient Greek. Um, So here we go, and I love this. He says this in Philippians 2. So if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, 
if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have partnership in the Spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how to do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. This is how you should think among yourselves with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah, Jesus, who though in God's form did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave being born in the likeness of humans and then having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, yes, even to death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him and to him in his favor has given the name which is over all names, that now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow on earth too and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that when we engage with some familiar passages and we're hearing it from these different angles, it kind of can breathe this new life into it. So what I want to do is kind of break this down into four parts. First, speaking about this idea of unity through thinking Christianly, and then to break down what we call a Christ hymn in the beginning here about um, Jesus' relationship with God and, and how Jesus shows the divinity of God and then the result of what that sacrifice truly mean, means and then bringing it back to how that in, invites us to think differently about our relationship with one another. And so if you recall from, chapters, uh, from chapter one of Philippians, we were talking often about this gospel. And for Paul, it was very much the gospel of King Jesus. Um, as Nicole was talking about last week, when we think of the, the gospel and it's Jesus came to save you from your sins uh, so that you can, when you die, you can go to heaven. Yes, that's part of it, but that doesn't get you killed. In the Roman Empire or even today, that's not a controversial thing. Talk about the afterlife all you want. But it was actually this gospel that Jesus was enacting that Paul and the other apostles were preaching that says Jesus is Lord and, and, and Satan is not, obviously. Um, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. This was the controversy of the gospel that had Jesus murdered, that put Paul in prison time and again to say, we have a new Lord. We have a new king. That's what the word Messiah really means. And we pledge allegiance to him with everything that we are. And all of these secondary gods and all of these secondary kings, these kind of makeshift uh, lords are all going to bow to him someday. That is a very dangerous message to preach in the first century as it is a dangerous message to preach today. So this, that's kind of the backdrop, and that's what I loved about this translation, starting off and saying, so if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort. So being united with Christ helps us to think like him. We maintain unity in heart, mind, spirit, and action. So I'm going to read it again in the NIV, just those first four verses. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to each of you to the interest of others. It's very, very practical um, affirmation that Paul is giving to his people of how we are to think, and then through thinking how we are to connect to one another. So again, being united with Christ helps us to think like him. So the first unity that we have is the unity with Christ. And then the second unity comes that we maintain unity together as God's people in our heart, the way in which we love, in our mind, the way in which we think, our spirit, the way we're connected kind of beneath the surface of all things, and then in action, the way that we actually demonstrate our love to one another. But love and harmony and thinking are only possible not only when we have common agreement of what we're here to do, but we also have a trajectory. And I was reminded of this this weekend. Um, Christy and I got to go and see um, Sweeney Todd on Friday. Well, two-thirds of Sweeney Todd, actually. One of the actors fell off the stage and broke her arm. And so I assume that play just turns out really great in the end and everybody gets what they want. I don't know. I'm going to make the story, but we went to that, and then last night we got to go to Immerse, and we saw all of these, you know, amazing theatrical pieces, and you know, a lot of times I think art is a really great demonstration of this, that when you have an ensemble cast in theater or in dance or whatever it might be, everybody's there for the same purpose, um, but they also have the same trajectory of where they're headed, and you need both of those things. Um, you know, it'd be a tragedy if you're watching Shakespeare, and all of a sudden, like, P.B. Herman comes out and starts performing, and you're like, what is this? This doesn't really fit. You know, we need that, that common purpose, that trajectory, and then this agreement among one another. Because sometimes when we're not listening to each other as you would in theater or you would in music, things tend to go awry. And I think this is a really good example of when we're not really listening to one another. done theater or music, you know how important it is. We have this common thing that we're headed to, this destination, this journey, but we have to listen to each other along the way or else we miss it. And I think that's what Paul is really encouraging us to in the beginning of this passage, that you have to have a common love for one another, you have to have this harmony within your spirit, and you also have to think together. And it's not just about thinking about the same things, but having something frame that thinking. And what he's really telling us is this, that our core witness to one another begins by thinking of each other as Jesus does. That when we begin by seeing one another through the eyes of Jesus, thinking of one another as Jesus thinks of us, that begins to give us this certain kind of trajectory. Remember in chapter 1, verse 8, we looked at how we are to have the affection of Jesus. Paul says, how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. 
And when we allow ourselves to receive the affection of Jesus, then we're able to offer that same affection to one another. And I'm often concerned about the calls for unity in the modern church that don't really seem to place a high premium on following Jesus together. Okay? A lot of times we set our sights lower than our common pursuit of Jesus, that we make unity about uh, uniform worship. Well, if we all just did it the same way, then maybe we're unified. Or we make it about belief. Well, if we all believed exactly the same things, then maybe we're going to be unified. I think even in the, especially in the modern church, it's the same social ethic, right? Well, if we all believe the same things about all the same social justice issues, then we will have unity. Or we make it about a social club. Well, if we're all coming as singles so that we can meet our future husband and wife, then we're unified in being the church. And a lot of times when we lower our sights off of being that our vision is to pursue Jesus together, we get stuck in the quagmire of, of what are we all doing here? And that's the importance of not only having an agreement among ourselves of why we're here, but allowing that common agreement to come from pursuing Jesus and having a very high view of intimacy with him. Because all of those other reasons become very self-involved. It's about us. It's about what we want. We begin to set our own agendas for community. And then we begin to believe that unity is something that we manufacture, that it's about our intellectual agreement. It's about us all you know, pursuing the same thing at the same time in terms of our social ethics or whatever it might be. But we fail to recognize, as Paul is saying here, unity is something that has been given to us as a gift by God. See, Paul's not saying make up some unity because of this person, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. He's saying, you have been unified with Christ. Past tense. It's something that you have received as a gift, but your, your task as the church is to reveal that unity that already exists. Think about that even across, you know, I, I love to, to point out, you know, that we have about 41,000 denominations of Christianity today because we love to do this. We like to parse out what unifies us and what doesn't, whether it's about baptism or it's about, you know, how you organize the chairs or whatever it is that we're always dividing over. And we fail to recognize, no, unity is something that has been granted to us by Christ. He has the one that's chosen unity for us. And it's whether or not we choose to agree with that unity or not, but it's not our determination that we are unified. And so how do we define humility? Because that really seems to be the core of what Paul's talking about here. In humility, value one another above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The word humility in English comes from humus in Latin. And the word means soil, or it means to be on the ground. This is where we get the word human, or where we get homo sapien. It's all kind of the same root. It's also where we get the word humiliate. And I was trying to work in this line today about like, will you allow the cross of Jesus to humble you or humiliate you? And I was like, well, we'll do that some other day. Um, but the idea of humility is very hard for us to define. Sometimes we think humility is, oh, I, woe is me. I'm a terrible person. I'm a sinner. I'm pathetic. I'm not worthy. We kind of enter into that kind of false humility. But even modern psychological research is, is revealing that humility has very little to do with what you do or do not have in terms of skills and accomplishments. It's how you hold those things. Do you think that you deserve special treatment because of your skills, because of your privilege or whatever. That's really where humility is. It's this groundedness. Are you grounded in reality in the way you hold your identity? 
in the way you hold your achievements or your performance. And I think the beauty of understanding humility in this light begins to, to see what Paul is really inviting us to, that I think hum, true Christian humility is a vulnerability for or interdependence. Because that's what we've actually been created to do. You know, and in this series, we've been talking about kind of the pagan gods that we um, have imported into our Christian understanding from the society around us. And our modern society really values independence, right? Uh, the whole goal of life of being an adult is to become as independent as possible. And so what do you do? You go to college, you get the good job, you buy the house in the cul-de-sac with the garage that you can drive right into and go into your house so you don't have to be outside. Like, you have to be as independent as possible. And that's the real goal of humanity. And I think Every, um, every opportunity that we take to become more and more independent, an individual is actually taking us one more step away from what we were actually created to be as human beings. Because it's not about being independent or codependent, which is an unhealthy relationship to other people, but it's this interdependence that we are vulnerable, that we are affected by those around us, that we are seeking other people to take care of our needs even as we take care of one another's. And that vision for humanity can only come from a grounding in the sacrificial love of God, which is what we're about to see um, in the rest of this passage. That when we see this Trinitarian God who selflessly loves the other persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that becomes the foundation upon which we build Christian community, where we have this circuit of sacrificial self-giving love. I think oftentimes I'm talking to people in specifically in relationship about trust. Trust is to say, I am free to give to you unconditionally because I believe that you are going to do the same for me. If I don't believe that you're going to give me what I need, and we're human beings, we have needs, if I don't believe that you're going to give me what I need, what happens to my love? It becomes conditional, right? It becomes manipulative. I start to give kind of with this agenda that you're going to give back to me because I don't really believe that we're interdependent, that you're going to provide for me freely. And so what this, this, hum, this humility, this vulnerability of interdependence does within community is it sets us up to love one another freely, believing that our needs are going to be taken care of when we have them. This is a really powerful concept for understanding who God is theologically, but understanding who we are together as, uh, as his family, as his people. Um, I saw Tim, is Lisa not here today? Lisa's not here. Tim and Lisa are getting married on Saturday which is awesome. Um, so we've been, we've been uh, doing uh, some, some premarital counseling over the past several months. And the last time we got together, we were talking about this little passage in Ephesians, maybe you know it, it says, um, you know, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. And we had some really great conversation around that because a lot of times that's a great example of where we misunderstand what authority means in community when we're looking at it through the lens of Jesus. That for many of you women, if you're honest, you're probably very uncomfortable with that verse, wives submit to your husbands. Because a lot of times it's been misappropriated and people forget the line right before that. It's Ephesians 5.21 for those who keep in score. Ephesians 5.20 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. And when you have that as your lens, humble submission, mutual humble submission, it dramatically shifts how you read the rest of it. Because what you and I are used to is an authority that's based on power and privilege. Who has the upper hand? In the kind of grand ranking of human beings, how do we rank? 
Who's, on the, who's the biggest and strongest and most powerful and the next and the next and the next? And we kind of this militaristic understanding of authority, which affects how we start to read passages like that. But then we come to these kinds of passages that in, you know, in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And we begin to understand there is a different heavenly shift that needs to happen. And so what does authority look like in the kingdom? If it's not based on power and privilege and capability and strength, what does true authority look like? And so Paul puts into this passage um, what we call a Christ hymn or a poem. And I think it's very important that you recognize this is in fact a poem. He may have written it. It may have been something that was kind of circulating through the churches at the time that he's bringing them back to. But we use art and poetry specifically to tap into something that's a little bit deeper than just teaching. He's not just giving them a list of doctrine. He's actually teaching them a song that's something that we're supposed to be immersed in because it, it leads us into understanding the beauty beauty of the gospel to which we have been called. And it, he elevates very community or humility very quickly, right? So he's saying like, take care of each other's needs. And he says, do like Jesus. And then it just gets real big, real fast. So I want to read that again, verse five to eight. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The humility of God on the cross challenges the way that we think about power, authority, and privilege. Again, we've imported all of these narratives from the world around us. This is what it looks like to have power. This is what it means to have authority. This is what your privilege means for your identity and how you operate and how you treat other people. And it was very true in the, in the first century as well. In the time of Paul's writing, in the time of Jesus, uh, Caesar Augustus was king. And Caesar Augustus is very well known for what's called Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. And we have a picture of him here. I, we assume, I mean, you know, it's a sculpture of him. He's a nice looking guy. Um, but Pax Romana meant peace through strength. And what that really means is peace through violence, peace through conquering. That the Roman Empire was spreading out into the whole known world and they'd come across these tribes and they'd say, okay, we're gonna fight you or you're just gonna become part of what we're doing. And a lot of different people groups just kind of rolled over and said, okay, we'll do that. And they said, pay a little bit of tax to Caesar. You can kind of worship your own gods. That's fine. You just have to recognize like Caesar's a god. And, and Caesar Augustus, Alexander the Great, some of these other um, big name Caesars and kings, they considered themselves divine because of what they were capable of. Caesar believed that he was God. And so that was a familiar phrase in the first century. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. He's the one who has brought peace to the whole empire. The whole known world knows peace through him. And so it was a common conventional wisdom of the day that you achieve peace through strength and authority, which really means you achieve peace through violence. Might makes right. Whoever carries the bigger stick gets to be in charge and to run things their own way. How often do we live in that reality now? In our society, when we talk about peace, we're talking about Pax Romana all over again. 
I think this works when we're talking about our nation. It works when we're talking about our persons. And there's something that's very popular today as we continue to weed out some of these ideas that we've imported into the gospel that are not of God. And one of them is called the two kingdoms mentality. And what this means is there's the kingdom of heaven and then there's the kingdom of, of earth or empire, whatever you want to call it. And it says basically this, Jesus had some really nice ideas, but this is the real world. And it's actually very impractical to be faithful to live the kind of lives that Jesus has called us to live. And so it's okay if we compromise some of our, our, our daily uh, going to and fro because that's just the reality of the world that we live in. We have to take care of ourselves. And someday we'll go to heaven and everything will be fine. This is the two kingdoms mentality. Jesus had some really nice ideas, but they're just not practical. They ultimately don't help me to get what I want. And you see that two kingdoms mentality playing out when we look at the national stage and you see it in the way that we treat other people. Because one of the things I said in the very first uh, message in this series was that pagan gods always demand some kind of sacrifice, don't they? All these gods, whether it's Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love, if it's Mammon, the god of money and greed, if it's Ares, the god of war, gods always demand sacrifices, and we sacrifice people in all of these various lies at the feet of these different gods. So when you look at this even nationally, you look at our military industrial complex, I was trying to find exact numbers, but in 2018, the US military spending was $649 billion. That was more than the next seven countries combined. We spend more than the next seven countries combined in the name of what we call defense, which is a very great marketing technique to say, oh, we're just defending ourselves. But how often is the best defense is a good offense? In the discretionary spending budget for this year alone, 54% of our discretionary spending goes towards the military. Something like 3% goes towards education. We still believe Pax Romana. It's still alive and well. Peace through strength, which is to say, really, peace through violence. And are we any better off? Have we made the world a better place? Or is it going to take one more tank? Is it going to take one more? This is going to be the one. You know, it's, it's a kind of a, a historic irony that World War I was called the war to end all wars. And all it did was inaugurate in the new series of wars in the 20th and 21st century. It doesn't work. Peace is not a destination. If we can have the biggest stick, then we'll bring peace. Peace is the way in which we walk the journey. And we don't pursue peace because it's practical. We don't live in unity because it pays out dividends for us right now in maintaining a level of comfort or it doesn't make sense according to conventional wisdom. We do it because we're called to be faithful to Jesus. And this also happens to us personally. Consider the, the modern phenomenon of canceling culture or when we talk about people being toxic. I believe it's that same thing where we have believed these lies about power and privilege and we said competition and rivalry is just the name of the game. I had this revelation a couple weeks ago. I was uh, replacing some plants. How many of you replace plants a lot more than you're willing to admit, right? 
and I usually buy one-to-one. -one. I try to find the same plants, and I'm sitting there, and I have these old, dried-up, gross plants, and I have these new ones that I'm going to put into those pots, and I'm thinking, may I never treat my friends the way I treat my plants? That whenever they become sick, I just label them as toxic and throw them away and just get new ones. You see, we do that all the time. We believe I have privilege, I have power, I have authority, and I get to decide who gets to be in relationship with me. I mean, how often do you see it in social media where it's all this like seemingly good advice that you're to avoid toxic people, that you should only let people into your world that give you good vibes, only people that build you up, right? This is what we've believed is like I'm, I'm in this place of privilege and I'm only letting in people that are building me up. And here we have Paul saying, consider others more valuable than yourself. Not the powerful, not the privileged, the toxic ones, the sick ones, the underdogs, the people that have no inherent value, the people that hurt other people. Those are the ones that I'm calling you to consider more highly than yourself. What's the end game of this Pax Romana, this peace through strength? What are, we, what, are, what are we trying to do when we believe in that way of doing life in that type of authority? I think that we're always trying to make ourselves gods to save ourselves. But God became like us to save the whole world. When we believe in our own authority, power, privilege, when we set ourselves up as the kings of our own little dirt piles of who we will let into our lives. When we kind of project that out onto the national stage and say we're going to achieve peace through strength. We're trying to make ourselves like God. And is this not what we see as sin? What was the first sin with Adam and Eve? Because the serpent came to Eve and said, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And Eve said, that sounds pretty good. And then what happened at Babel? We're going to build a tower that's going to reach to the heavens so that we can be like God. And I believe that most every sin of humanity, specifically when it comes to violence, is saying, we get to be God. We get to determine who lives and who dies, who has value and who does not. Because we believe that that's what it means to be divine. That's what we believe it means to have power. But that's not what we see in the God that is revealed in Jesus. What do we see there? We see a God who makes himself a human being, becomes like one of us, and, and make sure you do not miss this. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Not only did God become equal to you and I, he became less than us. He became a slave he forsook heaven to come to earth to be a human being, but he didn't even become like a regular human being. He became one who is beholden. He put himself beneath us. Do you realize that we have the only vision of God where God makes himself less than his own creation in order to save it? Let me say that again. We are the only faith that has a vision of God who becomes less than, not even equal to, less than his own creation in order to save it. But not even that was humble enough for our God. Not only did he become human, not only did he become a slave, 
but he humbled himself to the point of death. That our God gave up everything in order to save us. Our God gave up everything in order to save us. To demonstrate to us, this is what love looks like. The new pattern of creation is no longer going to be peace through strength, but through sacrificial love. And sometimes we believe Jesus gave up his divinity in order to become a human. But I think even that kind of gets our idea of God to be ultimately God's still up there and it's still about power and strength and authority and awesomeness and skills and privilege and all of that. And I don't think it's true that Jesus gave up his divinity to become human. I think moving from heaven to earth was precisely the indicator of his divinity. What is divinity? It is self-emptying love. It is sacrificial love. Right? Are we preaching? All right. We could be Pentecostals. That's all right. But not only is that the way in which God chose to save the world through self-emptying love, but he also came to give us a pattern to say, this is what you are to do as well. There's a line in 1 Peter where it says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, but he trusted the one who judges justly. And Peter says, this is how you're to live. When they beat, on, beat him and spit on him and abused him, he didn't respond with strength or power. And the disciples thought that was going to happen, right? They're like, at some point, they're like, Jesus, when are you going to rain down fire on them? Let's just take care of it now. Yes, that's what God would do. He says, no, that is not what God would do. You see, do you realize that Jesus even came to save us from toxic views of God? Jesus came to save us from the God who sits on top of the mountain and punishes those who do bad things and rewards those who do good things. Jesus came to save us from that view of God and then to show us the way that we are to live. In the crucifixion narrative, there's this, this amazing scene where it's the moment that Jesus breathes his last breath and he dies on the cross and the, and the, the veil in the, in the um, temple is, is cleft in twain, as the King James says. It's ripped in two. And it says this in Mark 15. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This man understands authority. This man understands power and privilege. He's a Roman soldier. He has, been, he has been the embodiment of Pax Romana, peace through strength. Caesar is Lord. We go in and we conquer and that's how we're going to save the world. This man was the living embodiment of all of that. He believed Caesar was God. And then he witnessed God on the cross, the weakness of God on display, the humility of God and said, that is divine. That is what God looks like. He recognized true divinity when he saw it. Who's uncomfortable? No? Great. Y'all been paying attention then over the past six years. <laughs> Continue on in verse nine. So there's this turnaround in the, in the poem, in the hymn. And this is what happens. 
after death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see this turnaround in in the narrative of the God in Jesus who gives up everything, who becomes less than his own creation in order to save it through sacrificial love, in order to provide this new way that the humbled is exalted, is lifted up. That eventually, this is a bold statement, eventually the humble authority of the cross will draw us all into King Jesus' new world. This is what the the, the hymn is saying. This true demonstration that authority is not based on power and privilege, but sacrificial love and humility. That vision of a new world inaugurated by King Jesus on the cross is what is going to save everyone. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And here this hymn is quoting from Isaiah 45, 23, where God says, to me alone, to me alone, every knee shall bow. And they're making a very bold statement and say, Jesus on the cross, that is the best demonstration that the world has had and will ever have of what God is truly like. And we see this echoed in another one of Paul's letters to the Colossians in chapter two. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and where did those sins and flesh come? From believing in power and privilege and strength and violence. All of those things lead us to sin because we're trying to make ourselves gods by doing the things that we do. He says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What happened? We sinned our sins into Jesus. He became the vessel that drew into himself all sin and death and evil, and then took it to the grave and buried it there. That is what Paul is saying. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, okay, having disarmed the powers and authorities, evil, the systems of man, sin, death, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities of this world are brought low. They are ridiculed. They are laughed at in heaven to say, you think that's what's going to save the world? You think that's how you're called to live? Let me show you there's something else. There's a more beautiful way. And it's Christ victorious on the cross over sin and death. It was all of this Pax Romana stuff that put him on the cross, but he bore it. He took it into himself. He put it to the grave and he canceled all of it. And then he was resurrected into a new world that he welcomes us to live into. This is maybe the best way that you can understand the cross itself. That there is now a new way to be in the world, inaugurated by our king, who does not sit on a throne of power, but is crucified on a cross. That you and I, we are called to reject power that comes through strength and privilege. We are called to elevate weakness. We are called to empty ourselves for the sakes of our brothers and sisters. Because to abandon our privileges and rights for the sake of the other is to have the mind of Christ. That is what it means for us to think like 
Jesus. And we speak so much about our rights. We have all of these rights. And it's true, you have rights. And we are very blessed to live in a country that grants us rights. But as Christians who submit to a higher authority, we sacrifice those rights daily. You have a right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that is good, but that's not necessarily divine. What Paul is saying to us is give up those rights. Give up that privilege. Give up your positions of power and strength where you begin to defend yourself or you get to make yourself your own little God of your own little world. Give all of that away and sacrificially love others and then you know that you're thinking about Jesus. How do we know that we're humble in our, appropriate, in our, in our view of other people? Number one, are you more concerned with being right than being loving? Very practical. In your relationship with other people, are you more concerned that you're right, even if it's about doctrine, are you more concerned about being right than being loving? Number two, do you hold other people at arm's length or do you hold people down in the name of self-defense? Okay, this is where that toxic people canceling culture thing comes from. Well, I just got to do what's best for me. When we think in those terms, we're often enacting violence upon other people because we're the best defense is a good offense. Are you holding other people down when you should be lifting them up? Do you look upon the least of these around you with disdain or awe? And guess what? You have a least of these in this room right now. And some of you immediately thought of a name or a face. And that's the point. Do you look upon people with the affection of Jesus? Or do you look upon them with this authoritative hierarchy that you've established in your brain of who's the best and most privileged and who are the people that aren't really worth very much? I think the beauty of the cross is that we start begin to realize this is the pattern of all things eternal. This is the pattern of all things divine. That we were created to go down so that we might go up. We were created to be humbled so that we might all be exalted together. And it's backwards logic and it's upside down conventional wisdom, but it might just save the world. And that's what's going to bring us to the table this morning. At the table, we humble ourselves. We come to the table needy, laying down our power and our privilege and our authority, our finances, our achievements in work, the things that we fought really hard for, the, the, being the self-made man, the self-made woman. We lay all of that down and we humble ourselves and we come to the table open-handed and in need to say, I'm, I'm weak, I'm broken, but it's okay because I'm loved by God. And it's not until we can lay down that power and privilege and come before God and allow him to reveal to us that we are his beloved, that that is the true core of our identity, that we recognize the humility of God on the cross, his blood shed for us so that we might live into this new world. The beautiful writer Henry Nouwen said this, 
of the Eucharist, whenever you eat the bread of heaven, you not only become more profoundly united with Jesus, but you also learn gradually to walk his descending way with him. Not only do you have that trajectory of intimacy with Jesus that we do together, but it also does something to us. I believe that every time we come to the table, it transforms us a little bit more to look like him. And then we enter into that descending way that we go down in order to all come up. So I want to invite you to stand with me. In order to to be humbled before the cross, we're going to pray a prayer of confession together to confess our sins and our sins coming out of that result of us wanting to make ourselves God, of wanting to, to have the right to determine who has value and who doesn't, and to lay that all before Jesus. And my challenge to you as you're gonna come to the table in a moment is to bring a person in your heart to the table who you feel superior to. Maybe they're in this room and they come in the room and you go, ugh, they're here? Yeah, it's called church. But who's a person in your life that you feel superior to or better than? Can you bring them in your heart, lay them at the table to receive the humility of God? So we're gonna pray this prayer together and then I'll give instruction for coming to the table. We're gonna recite this together. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. So just take that moment and say, Jesus, who is somebody in my life, in my community, in this room, who I feel better than or superior to, more capable than, have greater authority, that I might be humbled by recognizing them and seeing them the way that you see them. Let's take that moment. Here's how we're going to come to the table. I don't know if this is going to work, but the Lord gave me this vision. We're going to come in two by two, and the first two people you're going to take together, and then you're going to take the elements, and you're going to turn around, and you're going to hold them. And the next two people are going to come forward, and you're going to offer them the body and blood of Jesus, and then you're going to hand them the elements and go back to your seats, and then they're going to turn around. And so in this way, we're demonstrating as we come to the table, this is what we do. We consider each other more highly than ourselves. We bless one another by serving, by giving, by living out that sense of sacrificial love that what starts here radiates out through the community. And so I'm going to pray really quick, and I'm going to invite you to come down two by two. So Lord, bless this juice, this bread, that they might be for us, the body and blood of Jesus. And as we come before you, humbled, made low, that you would lift us up so that we can demonstrate to one another that sacrificial love of God on the cross that saves the world, where we enter into a new reality together, everybody together. Bless us in this time, Lord, in the strong name of Jesus. Let's come to the table two by two. First two pairs.
take from the table, turn around and serve the next two. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.